episode of the Classic Pickup Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whips, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This podcast is sponsored by Classic Pickup Supplies, your number one Ford and Chev pickup parts supplier. Mention Classic Truck for a 10% discount off your first order. Classic Pickup Supplies, located in Coolum Beach, Queensland. Call 07 5446 2667. Or visit their website, www.classicpickupsupplies.com.au. Classic Pickup Supplies, dedicated to the restoration and preservation of the pickup. There you go, guys. Uh, classic from the Eagles. Take it easy. I thought it'd be a, a fitting start to this episode. Uh, you know, talking about Winslow, Arizona. So uh, obviously, we are interviewing a gentleman named Winslow Bent. But I had a quick story for you about Winslow. That's why I sort of put it in there. Uh, when Ben and I were uh, in America, we were travelling around getting parts for my truck on my big trip back in 2019. We drove past Winslow, Arizona, on the highway and. And I, I, I just love the song, always have. So I was like, oh, we've got to go to Winslow. So we pulled in there and I uh, actually found an old wrecking yard out the back there. And we ended up having a big walk through there and found an old uh, GMC, a big C30 in there. And I managed to talk the guy into selling me the uh, the big front jewelry rotors off the front of it. So we spent about an hour or two in that wrecking yard in the blazing heat. Uh, I was under the truck taking the hubs off. So. Yeah, that's what's on my truck at the moment. So we're using that for all my fit up in my build. So yeah, I've got an interesting, I guess, soft spot for Winslow, Arizona, and uh, just tied in well, I thought, to what we're doing today, which is uh, interviewing Winslow Bent from Legacy Classic Trucks uh, in Wyoming. So he, uh, he's got a great little YouTube channel, this old truck, which you'll hear all about. And uh, he's got some episodes on Jay Leno's garage, built some really cool old classic vehicles. So definitely worth checking him out. Uh, big Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to everyone. Uh, apology, it's been a little while since I had an episode out. I've just had a bit going on, so that's life, I suppose. But um, yeah, I'll try and pick it up again and, and keep them coming in. Uh, I had a few uh, Aussie guests who sort of cancelled on me or postponed, which um, that's just life. That happens. Everyone's busy, especially around this time of year. So I'll try and get those ones locked in and recorded. But uh, yeah, if, if you know someone or you yourself have a cool build or a good story, uh, reach out to me um, if you you know if you've got some time and you want to chat. Uh, I'd love to have you on the episode. The podcast it's not about these professional guys like Winslow really. It's about you and I you know building our truck in our garage most of the time and and sharing information and tips for Australian builders. That's what I really want to focus on. So don't feel like your build is not worthy of being on the podcast because I don't really care what it is. I reckon it's worthy. You know even if you just put a a cab on a HQ chassis and you haven't done a whole lot more than that. That's still a process and there's a lot of people who are interested in, in doing that process for their own build. So let's talk about it. Hit me up. I'm really interested to talk to as many Aussie builders as possible. But we've got two American uh, guests in a row. So this time around, as I said, Winslow Bent, Wyoming. I uh, hope you enjoy this one. 
Winzo, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, bit of a treat for us to have another international guest and, and someone who's so passionate about trucks. So thanks for taking the time today to have a chat with us, mate. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here today. And, uh, you know, trucks are one of my favorite things to talk about. So uh, let's, let's get into it. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit, you know, I, I generally like to... Uh, I guess, get an idea of, of someone's background and, and what got them involved. So can you take us, uh, you know, rewind a little ways, tell us a bit about you as yeah. a young child. I, I believe your old man is quite a mechanical person, so that's probably where you got your, you know, your love of all this stuff. But how did that all start for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's basically right. Um, I grew up uh, just outside of Chicago, Illinois, and my father had a stainless steel fabrication plant. So his business made what to me was these sort of larger-than-life machines, just big dust collectors and meat saws and conveyor belts and things like that. So I grew up going up to the factory and seeing all those guys working and stuff, and I was, you know, just left this, this really awesome impression where uh, I had this huge appreciation for, for manufacturing. Um, and then... On the, the weekends, uh, my dad liked World War II uh, military vehicles, and so oftentimes on the weekend we'd go up to the shop and we'd we'd tinker on something. Now, my mechanical aptitude at the time was fairly limited, so I would just kind of pass him wrenches and things like that. But um, I I grew up with both an appreciation for manufacturing, you know, large pieces of equipment, as well as uh, this this appreciation for the the World War II vehicles. And I think that was probably the the beginning of it uh, for me. And I just had the the car bug. Now, growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, it's not it's not like great truck type country. Um, and so, by the time I was in high school, um, I was really kind of interested in drag racing. I mean, there's not a lot else to do in Illinois, in my opinion. So uh, I was had a 68 Roadrunner and, you know, putting down times at the drag strip and working on it with my friends on the weekends. And uh, it's so funny nowadays. Like, my Plymouth Roadrunner, early 1990s, I mean, this car was fast. For for our town, it was probably the fastest car in town. This thing is mean. And I'd go up to the drag strip, and I'm putting down quarter miles that are like, 13.9 seconds, 13.8 seconds, and you're thinking that this thing is so fast. And if you go look at, like, a new Toyota Sienna minivan, like, they're blowing the doors off by, by greatest time. So we we live in crazy times where the vehicles are getting so fast, so efficient, you know, turbocharging and uh, uh, transmissions with 8 and 10 gears, and there just seems like everything that comes out nowadays is so fast, and I just thought I was so cool back then, and I'm realizing now, like, man, that car wasn't even moving compared to what people are doing today, but that's what I cut my teeth on, and um, basically after high school, I moved out to Colorado to go to university. All of a sudden, I was in the mountains, and muscle cars and race cars and formula fords and all this other stuff i was was working on uh just were completely inapplicable in my uh uh in my new location and i think the first vehicle i probably got interested in when i was out in college was a toyota land cruiser a buddy had an old 
FJ-40 Land Cruiser and didn't have a ton of actual off-road experience at the time. And I was just astonished where this old thing would go. I mean, it just was basically a stock FJ-40 Land Cruiser. And it was walking up, you know, trails and going through the woods. And I was just absolutely fascinated by this thing. And uh, got myself a Ford Bronco, started working on that. I just kept this as a passion both through university and, and afterwards. Um, but it was always a hobby. I mean, you could probably call it like a serious hobby. Um, but I uh, left college. I got into the restaurant industry. My uh, my old man was like, "You don't do this as a job." Talking about the auto the auto restoration, tinkering on the cars and stuff. He's like, "This isn't a real job." I'm like, "Okay." So I went off to get my quote real job, and uh, really didn't like it very much. And then in 2008 is when um, I actually got laid off from the restaurant group I was working for. And the world's economy was in the toilet with the housing crash. And I was like, okay, world's ending. I guess I might as well do something I enjoy. So I bought an old power wagon and I fixed it up in my garage and I sold it and made some money. And I was like, huh, okay, well, let's, let's try that again. And, uh, I think at about the same time, my, my wife was like, I like what you're doing, but can you not do it in my garage anymore? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, okay. So that led me to getting my first uh, shop space, opening the doors to Legacy in 2008. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's an awesome journey. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny how, uh, you know, you, you're in a certain area and what, what's cool in a, you know, like you're saying, with a muscle car or whatever mm-hmm. it's in the city is a cool car. And then, yeah, all of a sudden you're in the country and you're a fish out of water. And I absolutely resonate with that. And, uh, yeah, it's it's cool that, uh, you know, a Toyota Land Cruiser, which, you know, for everyone here in Australia is just an everyday vehicle. I mean, they're, they're not that popular over there, are they? Um, there's, I would call it kind of a cult following. Like the people that have them are like... Full you on, can, yeah. You know, pry this car out of my dead hands like yeah. they're so into them but uh yeah i mean i think over here probably the bulk of what you see is like you know jeeps and things like that um and yeah the toyotas are remarkable and you guys in australia you get the good ones like here in the u.s they're all gas they have open differentials they don't come with the winch and so like sometimes i get on the Toyota website in Australia or, or UAE or someplace, and I see what everybody else gets to order, and I'm like, oh my gosh, a 70 series cruiser with a V8 turbo diesel, and I'm like, I'm moving to Australia, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we don't get those here, so one of the things that's been just great business for me is taking in vehicles like, say, a mid 1980s uh, FJ60 Land Cruiser, which was their their wagon, and um, you know we get them here with the straight six gasser, a four speed manual, like I said, open diffs, real close to the ground. I mean, it was just more. It was a little more of like a mommy car than 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 what I thought of as like a Toyota Land Cruiser. So we work with people like Toland Emu, ARB. Uh, you know, get the suspensions, the bumpers, a lot of actually Australian products. And we, we upfit the vehicles. We do LS swaps. So they now have enough power to, to move around. And uh, it's been great for us. Um, 
You know, if you're a mechanic, I think a Toyota is a terrible vehicle because you fix it and it never comes back again. Yeah. You know, they're just such reliable, well-built cars. Um, you know, another thing that I can say about the, the Land Cruiser is, so say at my shop, we take in something like a 1980 Toyota Land Cruiser. And then in my shop, I might also have a 1980 International Scout and say a 1980 CJ7 jeep and when you start taking them apart you, you get to see like why were the japanese so dominant in the early 1980s and and why were their manufacturing standards so good and you start taking apart these cars and it's like yeah i understand why u.s truck markets got clobbered by the japanese i mean their their build quality is so high uh, we eventually caught up and i think all the American automakers now can put out decent, reliable vehicles. But in the 1980s, Toyota and Nissan, I mean, they were just in a different league. Mm. Yeah, which which I think is what has, you know, forged their, you know, like you watch Top Gear and they drop a Hilux off the top of a um, demolition <laughs> building and stuff like that. But, I mean, you know, the the two places where I think a diesel Land Cruiser has, has truly proven its worth is – you know, South Africa, where the the number one vehicle everyone drives off road, and, yep. and then here in Australia, and they're both, you know, we have a lot of really rugged, hard country here, and yeah, they prove themselves. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have a seventy five series as my daily. Uh, it's a mm. it's a non turbo, but it's a diesel one HZ, and uh, it has oh, nice. it has six hundred and twenty thousand kilometers on the clock, and. That's still yep. the original drivetrain. Like, nothing's been replaced or fixed. Yeah, so. I mean, the, that H-series motor, that straight-six, non-turbocharged motor, I mean, you know as well as anyone, you're not going to win any races. But, boy, that thing lasts forever. Yeah, yeah. No, they're great. Like, like won't die. And, and you know, the, if you go buy a 2022 Land Cruiser, like an African market one, you can still get it with the H-series non-turbo mechanical fuel uh mechanical injection pump um like they're still making them that way and i'm like oh god that's so cool you know i, I wish i could get stuff like that over here but no way you know with emissions and safety and everything else they're like not a chance so we just take what we can get our hands on and you know upfit them make them super nice turn them back out again and i tell you you know it's it's a really reliable product they do everything they say they can um, and one of the things I love about the the, the Land Cruiser, and I, I may put Land Rover in the same category, maybe not quite to the same extent, but I feel like it's a car I can drive anywhere. Like, you know, you pull up to like, I don't know, I remember in Australia, you'd pull up to a roadhouse in the outback or something, and there's some, kind of some, you know, rough characters around. And like, you know, you feel like you fit in in the Land Cruiser, and it's great. Um, back here at home, and then I can take the same type of land cruiser and i can drive up to the country club and you know park it and go play around a golf with some friends and it seems to fit in at the country club as well and um there's just there's something about the vehicles that uh, certain vehicles you know, such statements like if you drive a humvee you know you have a, a hummer and it's like you know people roll your their eyes at you and everything else and i love the cruiser because it's just so friendly everyone's like oh cool land cruiser and uh you know, it's 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 great products, real really fun. And you know, basically, if you if you rewind a little bit then, and you look at legacy classic trucks, and you know, what does legacy classic trucks 
do. My business, uh, we essentially, we go out, we find old, mostly abandoned or completely run down uh, derelicts. Uh, so Dodge Power Wagons and Studebakers and Diamond Tees and all these defunct brands. And we, we bring those trucks here. These are unique pieces that not a lot of people have seen before. We completely refurbish them with modern engines and brakes and steering. And so what we give back to our client looks like this antique vehicle, but it actually has all of the modern running gear like you would probably see in a, in a, in, in a modern Land Cruiser, for example. So how do we get modern Land Cruiser performance of a 1947 Dodge? And that's what Legacy does. It's a weird sort of niche little market, but we happen to do that pretty darn well. And um, everything that I build, I, I like to drive 500 miles before I turn it over to my clients. If a guy tells me, hey, I want you to build me a truck and I'm going to be towing my horse trailer, I'm going to find a horse trailer and hook it up and tow it around and make sure it does what it's supposed to do. If the guy says, I'm going rock crawling, I'm going to take his truck out and make sure the suspension is articulating properly and everything works the way it's supposed to. And it's, you know, not really something that I can charge for, but it's uh, uh, just gives me that, that confidence. Like, I live, I live in the mountains. I live at the base of a, this huge mountain pass. And, you know, basically, if a car can make it over the mountain pass that I have to commute to to get to work, I think it can probably go anywhere in the world. I mean, it's like a 15-minute climb at wide open throttle. So if there's any problem with the cooling system, it's going to materialize pretty quickly. And then it's uh, about 10 or 11% grade all the way back down to um, Idaho, like you're crossing from Wyoming to Idaho, the backside of that pass. You're engine braking the whole time. You're, you're pumping the brakes. If there's any problem with steering, drive shaft vibrations, like I was saying, you know, overheating, anything, it's going to happen on this mountain pass. I can bring the truck back to my shop, make whatever adjustments I need to, and as a result, when Legacy builds something, it really typically doesn't come back here, or at least there's there's not, you know, someone coming back here and saying, hey, this thing doesn't do what I, I thought it was going to do. Yeah. Um, and that's how I ensure that my products work. In fact, being beautiful is like, gosh, I would say like almost anyone can make something pretty. You know, if you go to like a reputable body shop, they're going to do a really nice job and make something look nice. The question is how do you make it function properly? So a classic mistake I see people make is in a lot of these old pickup trucks, the uh, uh, radiator opening, for example, might be quite small compared to a, a contemporary vehicle. And it's so easy nowadays to get online and you go look at crate motors and you're like, oh, look at this one. It does 800 horsepower. That seems like a good idea. And you can order these huge fire-breathing engines, install them. Boy, this is great. I've got a, you know, whatever it is, a blown LS in here now. This is awesome. And the thing overheats. It doesn't work. You know, it's like you have all of these issues. And, like, where, where I want to come in is in that engineering, in the design, in the execution, and, you know, be the guy that says, hey, you know what, the Hellcat engine is going to overheat the second you turn this thing on or the second you start heading up a hill. If you really want something that performs, let's do a 5.7 Hemi or a 6.4 Hemi. And um, I just want to deliver products that are 
really well thought out and that will do what they say they can do. It's like my biggest pet peeve. And, you know, they buy a product and it doesn't do what it says it can do on the box. It drives me crazy. And so that was part of my design strategy ultimately. You know, like let's make everything a little bigger and a little stronger than it needs to be. And um, as a builder, one of the things that I've found is that when you're, say, building a classic truck and you, and you go through and you make everything a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger than it needs to be, the vehicle actually maintains the, some, some beautiful proportions. And then uh, it's not really until you're standing beside it that you realize, my gosh, this is a huge vehicle. Like, this is a huge truck. I would have never known that looking at pictures because everything looks to be in, in balance with itself. Like, there's, there's nice kind of cohesion throughout the whole build. Um, and then you stand next to it and you're like, my God, you know, those tires are 40 inches tall. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyhow, that's, that's a little stuff that we're up to with, uh, with legacy. Yeah. And I, I think it's really cool. I mean, there's, there's so many companies out there and, you know, you'd probably have to say thousands of shops who are, who are taking these old classic trucks and, you know, they're just slamming them and airbagging them, which, you know, I, I'm a fan of. I think it looks cool on the streets, and but you know you're mm-hmm. you're doing almost the opposite, really. You're, you're taking something and and even to the extent where I think you take a two wheel drive truck and you're actually turning it into a four wheel drive and and giving that that Absolutely. whole new lease to life. But the thing I think I enjoy the most from what I've seen you doing, there, there's this in America. I suppose you guys are allowed to do this, which is where you just take. You go buy a 2015 Chevy Silverado. You rip the cab off. You you chuck the 57 yeah. Chevy pickup um, body on there, and you make these, in my opinion, horrible looking flares for the fenders. And then you you know, or you don't, and you and the tires are sticking out six inches each side. And yeah. they just to me they don't look right. They look they look like I so agree. Yeah. So what what I'm seeing with your builds, you know, you, you did a really nice 55 Chevy there. You know, it looks like a sort of a factory Napco setup, but mm-hmm. you're putting the correct width um, axles underneath these trucks so that they're not hanging out. They don't look ridiculous. So tell me, you know, talk us through a little bit on that process. Do you try to use the original chassis and build off that platform, or do you do, you know, like the body swaps? What, what's the best way? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. So, I think guys like you and I can can look at the aesthetics of the vehicle, and we can see examples of so many builds where you take the modern chassis, you put the old body on it, and I feel like I've been really snobby about that for a long time. Where I'm like, I don't like how it looks. Well, I, I don't, but you know, fact of the matter is that, that building some of these these cars, I mean, this has gotten so expensive, and it does save a lot of money. If you go buy a, you know, a wrecked car of some kind, and in your own garage, you take the body off, and you put some other body on it, and presumably, you're going to have something that has the reliability of the donor vehicle, and, but it looks like an old car. Like, I mean, I kind of get it. You know, it's like, hey, I got 10 grand or 15 grand to put something cool together. And so I've really stopped kind of like bashing on the people that do that, though I would never do that myself. So when we take something like I think our most popular product is the Dodge Power Wagon, 
when I take a 1947 Dodge Power Wagon or a 1949 or 55 or whatever it is, I'm going to keep that original frame. That's, that's, that's part of the vehicle. Um, I also do a lot of work internationally, and I can't swap frames and then send something to uh, uh, UAE. Uh, or Australia or New Zealand, um, you know they don't they don't like that. There's a lot of different homologation standards, and if you keep the original chassis, you really kind of avoid all of those problems. Yep. So if you if you stick with the original chassis, you can do it in a way where you're in really great shape. And basically, once you've stripped down to that original frame, you're looking that over, seeing if there's any frame repair that needs to be made. And then you go, okay, what are the inherent limitations of the frame design from the 1940s? And a lot of times you see these big, like, C-channel kind of frames where today everything you see is boxed and super strong. So one of the things that we'll oftentimes do is go in and fully box the frame of something like an old power wagon. Then we add new cross members, and we get this thing set up where the frame has just a lot more rigidity uh, than it would have originally. We find that, for example, in the original power wagons, if you don't make those frame improvements and you slap on bigger axles and bigger tires, you get an unbelievable amount of frame flex. It's like the first time I built one of these things and I took it off-road, you know, I didn't know this trick yet, and I and I took one off-road, I was like, man, this old girl cut so much articulation. <laughs> and my buddy was like, Bro, that's not articulation. That's your frame twisting. <laughs> and you could look in the rearview mirror, and you could see how the box was off like 20 or 30 degrees. <laughs> and it was like, oh, no. Uh, so, yeah, my, my, my first truck, I think, had six inches of suspension travel and another six of frame flex. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, we got to change that right away. But... Once your frame is strong, that's the foundation for everything else you're going to do. So once your frame is strong, then you can go back through and say, okay, what kind of suspension do I want to put in here? What kind of engine is appropriate? And when you're talking about how do you get kind of the right look of the vehicle, the, the first thing that I always start with, uh, I, I see trucks as so utilitarian. You go, well, what was this truck used for originally? And what is the guy that wants to buy it going to use it for? And you got to kind of put that together in your head. Like, I'll go back to the power wagon. I mean, one of the calling cards of a power wagon is this huge power takeoff winch embedded in the front bumper. And it just makes the thing look like just mean machine from the front. And it, it, like that's its calling card. Big open fenders, big tires, and this huge winch. So I want to go modernize this truck. So I look at the the power takeoff winch, and I'm like, well, that's a pretty good way to kill yourself. And so I, th I take those off, and I'm going to replace them with something. But I'm going to replace them with the largest modern winch I can buy, not even because you need that, that you need a 16,000-pound winch in a 6,000-pound vehicle, but it's big enough that it looks appropriate. It fits the part. you got to keep the proportions correct the wheel wells full of tire, the big bumper in the front, like that's that's how you, you, you keep it together and that you start to get that aesthetic that starts to flow through the vehicle. Um, 
one of the things that you were talking about was just that look underneath where like the wheels stick out too far and things like that. It's like, yeah, you know, modern cars, they want them to be nice and stable. They seem to get wider and wider every year. And that's going to look pretty funny if you put it under, you know, a car that was designed to have a maybe 60 inch wide axle. And now you're at 69 inches wide. It's going to look like a roller skate almost no matter what you do. So we get around that by ordering custom axles from, um, Companies like Dinatrack, for example, um, Curry Enterprises is another company that makes makes really nice axles. Uh, so you know we can achieve all of this stuff and we can get that perfect perfect aesthetic, um, but it's expensive. Mm. So going back to what I was saying originally, yeah, I don't particularly like it when people do this kind of cab on scab sort of uh, quote restoration. But on the other hand, I'm like, I get it. Actually, if you're on a budget, that's a fine way to go. So I'm, like, not criticizing people for doing that anymore. Um, not everyone's got, you know, three or $400,000 to spend on a car. I mean, I know I don't. And um, so, you know, that's kind of where I'm at with that. Like, I think there's a right way to do it. I'm fortunate enough to have good clients, and I can build things so they look great. But I've completely stopped, you know, looking down on people for the choices they make. It's just, unless you do the fuzzy steering wheel. If you have the fuzzy thing on your steering wheel, I'm definitely making fun of you. But other than that, like everything, I'm I'm pretty cool with everything nowadays. I think I'm a lot more tolerant than I probably was 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I I could probably echo that sentiment, you know, I, I was a little bit the same and I know, you know, over there in America, it's, it's very much the S10 chassis that people use for, I guess, Mm -hmm. more the lowered, vehicles or the standard ride height which you know it's a good option because it's it's got the correct um track Mm -hmm. width and it's almost got the perfect uh wheelbase length and so yeah i mean there's absolutely it's your truck so you you do whatever you want you know and i think anyone that's taken an old vehicle out of a out of a field or a paddock and saving it from the crusher or saving it from just rusting away Mm -hmm. You have full reign to do whatever you want because that's you saved it as your vehicle, you know, whatever you want to do. And and here in Australia, we totally. we have a chassis base that people tend to use for a similar style swap, and it's it's a Holden um, Kingswood, like the one the one tonner, mm-hmm. um, you know. Mm-hmm. And the, and the main mm-hmm. reason they're so popular is that they you know they were start they started building them in the very early seventies, so with our Australian engineering rules and our what we call our ADRs, which is Australian Design Regulations, they didn't take um, effect until 1968. So the earlier the chassis platform you can work from, the less amount mm-hmm. of these rules you have to comply to, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, these things have a... So are you saying, uh, are you saying a, in Australia then the, uh, a 2010 chassis with a 1955 body on it is a problem all almost impossible at this stage yeah yeah you would you would need to have side intrusion bars you'd probably need to have airbags you'd need to have you know like all these all these things like you'd have to have all the sensors and so the way our rules and i guess i guess the united states is similar and it's a, a play on words because I don't believe they're united at all. But um, <laughs> and, you're here. And, and we're getting... 
we're getting closer to that here in Australia too. You know, like a a vehicle that was engineered in New South Wales can't come to Victoria and just get registered. It needs to, you know, there, there's ways around things, but effectively the engineering rules from state to state are different. What you can do in Queensland, you you can't do that in Victoria. So it it really makes things difficult. Um, you know. To have a just a standard way of doing things, I don't see why one country can't have the same rules. But anyway, that's a, another whole topic of conversation. Yeah. But yeah, at at this right. stage, um, yeah, you can't really do that. So what guys will do is that you know they'll take this you know early seventies um, Holden um, Ute platform. You said, you said it was a Jackaroo, or was it a different model? Uh, no, it's it's the uh, the Kingswood. Um, yeah, you know, okay, okay. HQ yeah. HZ. Um, I don't know if you recall too much, but they they would have been a, a lot of them on the road when you were traveling around this country. But um, yeah, so sure. they're, they're a popular platform, but the, the issue with them is the chassis width is too wide for mm-hmm. for a standard, you know, like 40s, 50s cab to yeah. sit over. So you end up having to, you can make it work, but it's not the ideal way, you know what I mean? So Well, if you can take your old, uh, truck platform. I mean, the first thing is if you're doing just a, a completely original restoration, you're probably have you know a truck with 90 horsepower or something. The, the top speed is maybe 90k, um, and you know at like 45 miles an hour, uh, you probably don't need like a ton of improvements. But if you're starting to put in you know more engine, more steering, more brake, whatever. Uh, then you do reach the limitations of that pretty quickly, and you need to look at things like boxing the frame, doing all of that. But you know, I'll tell you, there are some some great advantages. Not only the the aesthetics uh, that you mentioned, but first of all, just the freedom of building your own suspension and building it the way that you want it, so the vehicle performs specifically the way that you want it to, not the way some manufacturer did. Mm. And I really like having that kind of freedom. Um, that's a that's a very cool thing. Uh, what else was I going to say? If you if you keep the original frame, I found that you know the body fits is going to fit tight to that frame, right? And when you get into your S10 swaps or whatever people are, are using, you typically end up seeing the body has to be raised up uh, two or three inches on on pucks, and uh, that's another thing that looks really strange to me. It's like when I can look at the side profile of the vehicle, and I feel like like I can almost see through it. Like there's a frame, there's a gap, and then there's a body. Mm. I'm like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't like that look either. Yeah. Um, so a lot can be done with sticking. There is nothing wrong. In fact, I think it's advantageous to stick with an original chassis. It's just, it takes a little longer to build it the right way. Yeah. Um, one of the huge improvements that, that I can tell your, your classic truck guys is that, most of these vehicles came without power steering. And when you don't have power steering, you need to make the steering wheel as easy as you can to, to turn. And so you do that by putting negative caster or zero caster into the suspension. That allows the wheel to turn. But the problem is you get up at highway speeds, and that's what makes the vehicle feel like it's wandering and you're kind of hurting it down the road. So one of the first things that people seem to do is they add power steering to their vehicles, but they forget the simple step of going to your your front axle and rotating that front axle forward 
six, seven, eight degrees, it doesn't sound like much. Oh man, your car will go down the road like a bloody rocket. Like you can take both hands off the wheel. And it's probably the single thing that makes the greatest improvement to driving an old truck around. I would take power steering in that caster correction way before I think I would do anything else. It's just amazing the difference it makes. Mm. No, that's a good tip for and sure. It's great and, it, and it's cheap, you know, and I'm looking at it. I'm like, boy, this guy spent $600 putting power steering in his car. He could have spent 605 and had some caster wedges in it and had something that actually goes 80 miles an hour down the highway with one hand on the wheel. Like it is an astonishing difference. And I really uh, encourage people to, to give that a whirl and kind of, kind of experience that as one of the first upgrades you make to an older car. Because you start taking steps like that, and pretty quickly you're going to forget all about, oh, I need this modern chassis from this other vehicle, and I'm having these regulatory problems and everything else. It's, oh, you can work with the original and make it absolutely wonderful. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. It's um, it's it's always I think, you know, I I've, I'm on so many Facebook pages, I suppose, um, mainly because of the podcast and to be able to share share it around and and so my um my Facebook feed doesn't have much to do with any of my friends to be honest. It's always here's another <laughs> here's another truck and it drives my wife mad. But you know, like my, most I was of the say my my wife calls it truck porn. Yeah, she says, "Are you watching truck porn again?" <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah but uh you know like the first question i think you know we see almost every time i just got this truck what front suspension should i put in it you know and it's 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 often the the swap to an independent front which here in australia is pretty popular to use like a a jag um suspension or or something like that just because uh it's it's cheaper and the engineering's a bit yeah. easier because it's a, an OEM part versus putting a Mustang two style kit together. But mm-hmm. we have a bit of everything, you know, it, it's great. And um, my my truck that's sitting behind me here, which you can't see because we couldn't get your computer to work. Um, yeah. But I, I've got a 1950 Chev truck, which is a um, one of the, what they call the big truck, I suppose. It's got the, the slightly bigger wheel openings and, um, it's it's got the original so like what they would have called a 3600 or a 3800 or something like that no so for you it would be like a 6400 um you know oh, like, wow. okay big, big. yeah oh, like wow. a grain truck or a, yeah something like that so yeah yeah sure yeah nice. so the whole front end is a little bit larger than the um you know the 31 to 3800s or 3600s mm-hmm. but uh yeah and so that I, i've got that on its original chassis and you know like you're saying it's a c-section it's about you know, what would it be in inches? It'd be probably 10 inches deep. You know, it's quarter mm-hmm. inch thick plate, you know, like solid, solid truck. And, and I shortened it up a yeah. bit and, you know, and I've, I've changed the chassis a bit to, to get some suspension in there and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, absolutely. I, I love that I've, I'm using my original chassis, uh, but mm-hmm. I also then realize I'm almost building a new car because you, you, you have to put the axles in and right. you have to have suspension and you have to have your shocks and you have to, all that stuff, like yeah. you're saying, it's it's time consuming and it's probably a lot more expensive than just doing a, a swap onto a chassis that's already, everything's done and you can just drive sure. it, which is really cool. Now, what one of the things I, I saw you 
had done, which I think is really cool, you 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 did some buses um, for the Glacier National Park. Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, so basically, along with the Dodge Power Wagon, which I've been obsessed with since I was a kid, uh, when I was growing up, I had a little model Yellowstone bus sitting on my desk, and I always thought the things were so cool. And in 2018, um, I don't even think I was having a particularly good year at Legacy, but I, I waddled into work one day, and uh, there's this letter from the Depart- U.S. Department of the Interior. And I was like, oh, God, they're going to sue me. Something, <laughs> you know, something terrible happened. You know, I've, I've caused some kind of environmental disaster or something. And I opened it up, and it's like, hey, dear Winslow, uh, we're up at Glacier National Park, and we've got 33 of these historic buses, and we would like to get them all, all fixed up. And would you like to consult on this project? And I was like, oh, man, yeah, absolutely. What an honor. So I went up and checked these buses out. Lo and behold, they got 33 of these white model 706 buses that were all from uh, 36, 37, and 38. And they have been in almost continuous use since 1936. Um, and what that means is about every 15, 20 years, they need to get uh, refurbished. And so essentially me coming as the consultant, they said, we want to refurbish these things. What do you think we should do? So for example, the last time they were refurbished, uh, this would be like maybe in uh, very early 1990s and they wanted to do something green and environmental. So they, they made the things run on propane and cause that was like the, the, the green thing to do in 1990. Well, you know, obviously today everyone wants hybrid. So, um, we looked into some different hybrid systems and we came up with a, with a plan where I said, you know, you can get these buses back with full modern DOT chassis, anti-lock brakes, you know, it's going to pass all of the safety tests, insurance tests, everything else. I can buy these chassis. I can add a hybrid system to the chassis and then I pick up the old bus body and drop it onto the new chassis um, and then am able to to give it back to them. And uh, that program's it's working really, really well. The buses themselves, they're so cool, but they're so hard to work on. Uh, these, these buses, when they were built on the assembly, well, if you go look at the bus today, you look at an original bus, and it seems to me like anything that was probably stamped uh, on the body, maybe like a fender, those are made out of steel. There would have been a tool, and they stamped out all the fenders. But the straight pieces down the down the body of the of the bus uh, are aluminum, and they used aluminum because it was easier to work with. And the guys were doing this on the assembly line, so they put up a sheet of aluminum, looks pretty good, and they're like, "Great, I, I'll, I'll install it." So everything was hand fit with the aluminum, and everything else is metal. Well, metal and aluminum hate each other, mm. and um, so you end up getting a lot of electrolysis, a la. Land Rover uh, has has issues with that. And so while aluminum doesn't rust, uh, you get this weird powder that starts to develop between the substrate in your paint and the and the actual steel body. And it causes paint failure and it bubbles. And it's like the car's rusting. And 
you take it apart and you look at it a little more carefully, you're like, no, it's not. That's electrolysis. So to deal with that, you need to take one of these old buses and you need to pull apart any area where there's metal and steel, where there's aluminum and steel overlapping. I, I pull that panel. I might not completely remove it from the bus, but I may be able to pull it back a couple of inches, enough that I can get in there with uh, my primer and use a, a really high zinc primer. The, the higher the zinc, the more it's going to fight off that electrolysis. So we have to go through and uh, zinc coat everything where those two uh, metals are going to uh, be touching one another to try and prevent that from happening. So like that's one of the first challenges. But to take it one step further, the body of those buses, the you know what I call the the frame of the of the body is made of wood. Yeah. They're made of oak. And so the fasteners, those body panels I'm talking about, were typically just nailed to the wood. And um, so now you've got biferrous metals touching each other. You've got wood, which is expanding and contracting at a very different rate than, than steel. Uh, it's subject to humidity more than steel. So you kind of have a lot going on. And it's, it's, they're so cool, but it is so much work to do one of those vehicles the right way. In fact, a, a lot of times you see people that start a project like a bus and it starts to sink in that, you know, just based on the square footage, this is three or four normal restorations. And then you start to throw in the, you know, biferous metals and wood frames and, oh, my Lord, you are, you are going off in the weeds. I mean, <laughs> you could have yourself a very, very large project that maybe you did not anticipate having. Uh, when you really start to look at, at the bus. Mm. But, uh, yeah, we're doing it. We're getting these things back on the road. Uh, hybrids are up and running. I think collectively they probably put about 200,000 miles on the 11 that I've completed so far. We're in a great position to complete the other uh, 22 buses for them. Uh, Yellowstone National Park has seven or eight buses, I think. Zion National Park has one bus, uh, which I'm contracted to do. Uh, Grand Canyon National Park has a historic vehicle uh, that I'm contracted to do. And so it's really interesting. Once I was kind of in with National Park Service, the government, the concessionaires that work there, it's like well, it's one of those things where once you're in, you're in. Yeah. And so these obscure uh, uh, government agencies, they don't throw anything away. So they've got warehouses with old stuff in them. And it was amazing to go see some of the stuff that these guys had. I was like, wow, you know, a carriage from the 1910 and just amazing, amazing stuff, amazing equipment. Everything's there. And when they can, basically when they can afford it, uh, they take the stuff out, they have it all refurbished. And, and I really commend the National Park Service for, for their commitment to not only make environmental choices, but to keep cool, unique trucks on the road in a, in a part of the parks. And it, it really resonates with me because I see the development of the Western United States, like after World War II, trains brought everything to the main hubs. And from there, 
it was trucks. It was trucks that put up the telephone lines and the electric lines and uh, building dams and forestry projects and mining projects. Uh, so not only do you see, do, do I have to give so much credit to the American truck and what they did in the American West, uh, but then I start looking at, you know, these vehicles have such an important story to tell. And it's really interesting when, say, a farmer in the 1950s, they, they receive their vehicle and then they make some kind of modifications to the vehicle themselves so it can do specifically what they need it to. And it just cracks me up to see some of the stuff that people came up with. I mean, generally, what I'm seeing is like, you know, people, maybe they put a buzzsaw in the back of their car so they can chop up firewood. Mm. And I'm like, great idea. So, so incredibly dangerous. Like, I see things that guys cobbled together in the 40s and the 50s, and I'm like, man, you must have, like, barbed wire for chest hair if you operate this vehicle. Like, this is unbelievable and, uh, you know, dangerous and rough and wow. So you got the historical stories of the trucks themselves, and then you've got the unique stories of the people that owned and operated them. And, you know, I guess that's where... Uh, and I'm not sure if, if uh, you or your listeners are up to this, but, but I have a, a, a new YouTube channel out, and uh, I have a show. It's called This Old Truck. And my motivation for starting the YouTube channel was really to focus on that, like, farmer-rancher that has the old truck that has all these crazy stories and has modified it. And what I'm finding here is that the guys, the old-timers that operated these vehicles, I, I think they're just as impressive as, as the vehicles themselves. And, um, you know, they're old. They're passing away. And a lot of their stories are not being transferred to the next generation. And in a lot of instances, the next generation might not be interested in their truck or what it was used for. So I wanted to start a YouTube channel where, you know, once a week I go out and, and I find somebody that has a vehicle that's maybe been in the family for a long time where they have, you know, all of these stories where there's all these scars and battle wounds on the truck that they can tell me stories about. And I just want to go out and record all this stuff while we still can. Mm. It's like it almost doesn't – I see it as a necessity, and I'm like this doesn't have to be like – the glossiest, greatest, you know, highly produced show in the whole world. What needs to happen is it needs to be recorded. It needs to be recorded now. And, and there's a sense of immediacy for, for me in seeing that this is done. Um, if you go and look at uh, episode one of my show, we did a Diamond T truck. Well, I've known that truck and I've wanted to shoot that truck for probably four or five years you know, I knew the owner. It was great. And when I finally got around to wanting to start my YouTube channel, I, I went to call this guy, and he's dead. Mm. And the, the, the family still had the trucks, but all the stories are gone. And it's like, it's very sad. And it just, it didn't sit right with me. And I'm like, you know, right now I'm doing the show. It's all out of my own pocket. I don't have, you know, sponsors or big budgets or anything else. I just have an honest, like, true desire to go record these things and their owners before they're gone. That's awesome. And, you know, it really is – I know even locally here in the country where I live, 
you know, we're in farmland and, and I get out to a lot of properties um, for a bunch of reasons. I'm the local snake catcher here, actually. So, you know, if someone has a snake on their property um, <laughs> near their house or something, they, they call me, which is great because I get to sort of, you know, you, everyone keeps their good stuff behind the shed. And uh, if you could get on the property yeah. without trespassing, then, you know, you often you can find yeah. some some really cool stuff. But the, the thing that really blows me away is, you know, you get into the, the workshop on an old established property and it's basically, it's a machine shop, you know, there, there'll be a metal lathe, there'll yeah. be a hydraulic press in there, there because the farmers, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you didn't just do what we do now and, and jump online and order the part and it's there the next day. You know, if you broke a piece of machinery, right. you know, you went up to the workshop and you manufactured a new one or you repaired it. And, and that's, you know, that's a similar thing. Like that skill is disappearing and, and those part, those, those tools are now just sitting around or they're being sold off, which is a real shame. There, there's a really cool uh, podcast that I listen to. Um, and I think a lot of our listeners, I don't know if I've mentioned it actually, but it's called The Rodcast, so R-O-D-C-A-S-T. And uh, it's mm-hmm. basically, um, it's the Australian Hot Rod Foundation and the guy who, I think he may be the president or something like that, but he he recognised what you're talking about um, a long time ago. So he's he was going around America to all these old school hot rodders, like the original hot rodders, who are no longer with us, and and thank God. And he went around with a recording, you know, I think it was probably a cassette tape recorder, you know, and and he interviewed all these guys for their stories about the history of, you know, street racing and drag racing and hot riding, and and he had all these recordings just just to have them, you know. And at the time he was doing them, podcasts didn't even exist, but he's now taking all these recordings and releasing them on the podcast. And, and you get to hear, you know, if you're into hot rodding or drag racing and, you know, these guys who would effectively, they'd all be Hall of Famers now, but he talks to them in their workshops 30 years ago. And it's just fantastic to hear. And, I, you know, that's a similar thing to what you're trying to do, I suppose, to a, a different degree with these old trucks, which is really cool. I have watched a few of the episodes and, uh, yeah, it's, it's good just to see, you know, Things that are, and they're not the run of the mill normal vehicle, are they? Like you know, you're taking the time to find some some cool, unique vehicles. Absolutely, but uh, you know, kind of whatever spins your crank, you know. And if you see something cool um, um, out there that maybe a person doesn't doesn't have it for sale or doesn't want to sell it, but stopping and talking to them and planting a bug in your their ear, like, hey, here's my business card. If you ever change your mind, this is a a really special looking vehicle and I really like to see that it gets to a you know a good family and back on the road and um, because typically what you get well the guy might have no no intention of actually fixing up the vehicle maybe it's something that belonged to his grandpa or it has some kind of a sentimental value so he just leaves it sitting there as like a wreck and um, won't throw it away um, but might not fix it up either and so sometimes I find like you have to keep going back every six or 12 months being like, hey, Bob, how are you? How's the Studebaker? Okay, good. Talk to you in the next six months. And eventually, the guy's going to, if he decides he wants to sell it, he's going to sell it to you, and then you get the cool car. Uh, but these things, they take patience. But, uh, you know, even if your listeners uh, 
you're, you're getting out there and, 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 and talk to these people about these cool old vehicles and, and what they were used for. Just, you know, hear the stories. And it's, it's just such inter interesting and, and fascinating uh, that things can happen. Um, I remember uh, this was probably about seven or eight years ago now. I took in a, a World War II vehicle called uh, a Dodge Carryall. It's also known as a WC-53. And um, I started working on this, this vehicle. And the first thing you do in a, in a proper restoration is completely disassemble the vehicle, catalog all the parts so you get a really good handle of like what's what. Then you sandblast the cab. Maybe you start your body work or whatever. Well, my guys, they went and sandblasted the cab. And they're starting to do the body work, and they're like, "Hey, boss, there's something like rattling around in this car, and we we it's stuck in there's something stuck in the A pillar, and we we can't get it out." And so we're all looking at this thing, and we're in there. We get um, coat hangers and make them in, you know, these little rods to try and pull out whatever this thing is that's stuck in the A pillar. And we popped out a German harmonica, and it was like, "Wow." How did that get there? You know, like this thing was stationed. This thing was stationed in North Africa in World War II. What were the circumstances that led to a German harmonica ending up in a U.S. service truck? And it doesn't seem like much, but when you start to think about it, kind of interesting. Mm. And like, so I shined up the the harmonica and gave it to the owner. I'm like, here's your truck, and here's the harmonica I found when I was redoing it. But they, oftentimes you get these different sort of head scratchers and uh i just love it yeah, yeah you know i had a i had another really funny one about six months ago when i'm talking about how your your farmers and ranchers and, and whatnot and how they upfit the vehicles to sort of meet their own needs i was looking at it was a dodge power wagon it was from like the it was from the 1940s and um i'm checking this thing out with the intention of buying it and i'm looking at the cab and the truck had these little chrome windshield uh, washers, you know, the things that squirt the fluid out under the windshield. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, but that, what? No, that car never came with that. And I was like, who put those on there? And I went inside the vehicle, and I looked under the dash, and you could see where the, the guy had taken a mason jar, and then he had... Uh, turkey baster stuffed in there and then like surgical tubing that ran up to these squirters that he put on the cowl of the truck and I'm like what the hell and so you reach your hand in and you start pumping the turkey baster and it starts squirting the fluid under the windshield I'm like nice They're like the world's first completely analog windshield cleanser fantastic but you just like who came up with that you know like that's ridiculous and it's it's it can just be so much fun looking these things over before you even do any work on them at all, just spending some time with them and really getting to like fully appreciate the vehicle and maybe some of the, like, what has this thing been through? And, uh, it's, it's pretty far out. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. I, I had a 54 Chev truck that I, that I bought off a farm and I brought back to my workshop and, you know, similar sort of thing. And it, it had a small, uh water radiators you know like a small heater unit that you would use mm -hmm. um and so what he'd done is he uh plumbed the water out of the engine to flow mm -hmm. through this heater and then 
back into the radiator. So, you know, kind of very rudimentary. And it was, you know, on the trucks, you've got the side vent where you can just push it down sure. and the little vent opened yeah. up. And so he had this, this radiator was mounted inside the cab right in where the vent was. Mm-hmm. And then there, mm-hmm. there was basically, you know, just a, a hand tap that you could turn the flow on or off of this thing. And, you know, exactly that. You know, some guys built his own... I see where this is going. It's a hot water heater for in his vehicle, you know. And I was like, oh, that's just so cool. I've never seen anything like it, you know. Yeah, there's there's a thousand. In in Australia then, so was the 54... So in the U.S., I think of a 54 Chevy as being a one-year only uh, vehicle. Like we had, what was it, 47 to 53. Then I think you've got... Is it 54, or maybe the second half of 54 and the first half of 55? Yeah. And then it goes into the 55 through 57, which is the design that we're we're all accustomed to seeing. Um, but in Australia, was your was your 54 that kind of oddball, sort of in between the two? Yeah, so what, what we had, so our, our cabs were made here in Australia by uh, Holden, which was, they're a GM <laughs> company, but they're a coach builder here in Australia. And, mm-hmm. and so the way it worked, I th- my understanding of the way it worked, and I can be corrected if I'm wrong, but because uh, Australia was trying to protect our, you know, Ford and Holden um, industry, because we were manufacturing mm-hmm. vehicles here, to import a vehicle from overseas, obviously there were big taxes involved. And what they they had this situation where you could import oh, a certain percentage of a vehicle without it being called a vehicle, I guess. So we had these, uh, I think they were called knockdown knockdown builds or something like that. So effectively, we would buy the chassis, I think the engine, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of stuff, and it would come in like that. And I think we got ours from Canada, and then Holden would build the cabs, and they would be right-hand drive, and then we would just fit up. I think the sheet metal was probably imported for the front of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we... We had the same, they look the same, but I mean, a, a US door will not fit on an Australian cab and vice versa, but the right. but the grill and the front fenders will bolt up because that was all made the same. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, there in the US, your 54s, you got the one-piece wraparound windscreen. Uh, we never had yeah. that in our trucks. We had the split window all the way through to mid-55. Um, we, right. we had the catfish grill, you know, the... the the same as the 54, 55 in the States. We had the same change in the grill. Um, yep. But, yeah, that, that was the major difference. But we didn't change – the cabs didn't change. So the our dash is the same. I know in the in the US yep. 54, you have a different kind of dash cluster and, and that sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. ours remained the same. All that changed was the front sheet metal. Um, yeah. I sure, uh, I sure love the, the Chevrolet GMC cabs from the, the 1950s, um, like ergonomically, they're so different than vehicles from the 30s and 40s. I mean, there's just, I, I'm a fairly, you know, large guy, 100 kilo, six foot tall, and um, you get in something from the 30s and 40s, and like, it's, it's fun to drive around for like, you know, 30 minutes or an hour or something, but I end up just feeling so like shoehorned into the cab. I'm like, get me out of here. Yeah. Um, and when you when you get into the uh, the advanced design trucks, the task force trucks, 
um, the cabs were like, they're so spacious and there was so much light and glass. I mean, you couldn't even probably build a vehicle that way anymore uh, due to like, quote, safety standards. I guess at some point we decided that you should have so much sheet metal around you that you can't even see out of the freaking vehicle anymore. And that's going to make it safer. Well, you can see how that's debatable. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, yeah, by the mid 50s, you're driving around in a really comfortable cab. Um, like I've got so much room inside those things that again, you know, if you want something that's like uh, Australia is a pretty big place, you know, you got, you got some long stretches of road between point A and point B and, uh, uh, something like that, that mid fifties, uh, Chevrolet GM type design Holden. Um, I find that just stock, I could sit there all day. I'm like, what a nice place to spend the day. Not a problem yeah. where you go 10 years earlier and it's like totally different. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm six foot four. So I, I know exactly what you're saying about, you know, especially the leg room. And, and I, I've, I've given, yeah. I've given some real consideration to, um, making my truck, a, a dual cab, just, just kind of for that mm-hmm. reason, um, bit of extra leg room, but I, I know that's a lot of extra work and, and that's something I was going to probably touch on with you too. I, you know, I watched your, you were on Jay Leno's garage, which was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, you had a, a four-door power wagon that you'd built. So you do the four-door conversions yourself there? Yeah, we, we, we do. Um, well, so I've been doing them since uh, my first one was probably 2009, maybe, 2010. Um, and there have been some design changes as, as we've gone along. Um, but we have built a ton of those things uh, in-house. And that is, that's tricky work. That is really tricky work. I mean, body work's one thing and mechanicing one thing, but coach building is, man, there's a lot of things you got to watch. I mean, you, it just seems like when you do your coach building, so say I, I cut a cab in half and I, and I have it, um, I'll, I'll have a, a table set up in my shop and I know the table is totally level the cab is like perfectly square. I mean, everything's set up where I have total control over this thing. I cut the cab and I pull that back portion of the cab back and back and back till I have room for that, that rear uh, section that I intend to add. So the back of the cab is sitting back where it's going to need to be on the new truck. And you've got a, I don't know, a one meter gap. And I seem to spend the next, I don't know, thousand hours filling the gap yeah and uh, it's frustrating work it's really hard there's compound angles and things and you're um you know using a english wheel and uh it's really challenging and i i have seen a number of projects where people get into it and then they just they just lose it it's just like man this is way more way more work than i thought it was going to be um but keeping, yeah, keeping everything aligned is uh, is pretty tricky. Um, what are some other pitfalls I've found? Oh, I think the first time I did a crew cab, you're going to want this big long roof now, right? So I think I got a piece of sheet metal and I welded it in and was like, okay, great, got a roof. You know, I'm not going to get wet when it rains. Awesome. And uh, take the truck out and start going 60 miles an hour down the highway and the roof starts flopping up and down and uh, you know, waffling in the air. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's not going to work at all. So 
what we found is that you can buy roofs for for modern vehicles. So, for example, I happen to like the Chevrolet Suburban. You can order the whole roof uh, from GM. It comes to I me mean, as an unpainted part, but it has all the nice ribs and everything in it, and it's like it's really strong. And I can take one of those pieces, cut it to size, and weld it into the uh, to the old truck, and I end up with a component that is substantially uh, stronger. So that's a that's a pretty good pointer, I think. If you have uh, listeners who are who are contemplating a, a project like that, uh, don't be afraid to use a couple of modern car parts here and there. Uh, that that some of them are are really well thought out and and work very very well. So, for example, uh, roof panels. Another thing that I found in the uh, old trucks is uh, upgrading the the, the wind lace. Um, Vehicles that were designed to go, you know, 40 miles an hour are now going 80 miles an hour, and you've got your windshield wipers are lifting off the windscreen because there's they were never designed for that much airflow, so your wipers aren't working. I've had wipers spin around and point straight up in the air. You get howling wind noise through the doors, and you know you, you got to think all this stuff through before you tear into it. And the the easiest way I found to deal with the the door stuff on an old truck. If you have it completely sandblasted and you're doing all of your your body work anyway, it's pretty easy to go around the inner lip of your door frame and just just weld a small lip all the way around your door. And you get it through with body and paint. You put it together with all of the original style equipment. And then the only thing I'm going to have you do differently is put a modern seal around that um, that piece that you just made, and that seal going all the way around the door is just this another step of, of protection, and it makes a huge difference in keeping the rainwater out of your fancy interior, and uh, you know making it quieter and more comfortable and not as hot. And there's just like so many benefits um, to taking you know these small steps. And uh, I, I like you. I, I think it's interesting to watch some of these forums and Facebook pages and things like that because. You get to see, you know, through trial and error, like, hey, what works and what doesn't. And um, there's just some, some neat stuff out there that uh, I've always found it fascinating that you, know, you could spend 10 hours doing one task or you could spend 11 hours doing a task. And you do the 11-hour version is twice as good. Um, sometimes it's just that one extra little step. Like I was talking about adding positive caster to your suspension or welding this little flange around a door or using a roof panel that's ribbed rather than straight metal. I mean, these are, these are small changes, but as you get enough of those put together and, like, working for you and, and for your build, um, you can, like, you can raise the quality of the whole build so much higher. And um, you look at it at the end and you're like, that really didn't take that much extra effort. You know, some of the smaller components. Hmm. Um, but of course you were talking about coach building and, uh, you know, I'm like, bring me a wheelbarrow full of money, uh, you know, and I'll see you in like 18 months. <laughs> yeah. Like it's hard, hard work, uh, in, in finding people that'll do it. I, it's easy to find someone that says they'll do it. Uh, and then they get into it. And, you know, if you, you get some builder making that for you and if they don't have a bunch of these things under your, under their belt, um, they, they, 
you know, you might end up in real trouble. Yeah. You've got $35,000 tied up in this thing and your truck's still in two pieces. Yeah. That's a bit scary, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, but you know, again, in this day and age, one of the things that we're seeing so much of now is like specialty shops. Um, I'm a, I'm a classic truck guy. I'm like 1920 through 1970 American trucks. If you want one built well, call me. I know all the pitfalls of American trucks from 1920 to 1970. I might have a very good client who's bought one or two vehicles from me and calls me back and says, hey, Winslow, I want a 68 Camaro. And I say, oh, man, that'll be so cool. Let me put you in touch with somebody that builds 68 Camaros. Yeah. Because you're not going to like my 68 Camaro or you're paying me to go back to school and learn how to build a 68 Camaro when you could have just taken it to a specialty shop to begin with. And it's be the, it should be the same money, but it's a better product. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You specialize in, and you become good at something, and that's that's sort of where you should stick to. And, and I guess that was something I, you know, we're probably getting close to – having to finish up here because my staff arrive in a minute and we're going to start beating away on uh, an old Suburban. But uh, I I just wanted to, you know, talk to you a little bit about, you know, you built the first power wagon yourself in your garage and, and then you sold it and made a little bit of a profit. And then you kind of, you're saying you got laid off from your, your hospitality work and, mm-hmm. and, and decided to go and open a shop. And, and did you, you know, I've always thought to myself, I, I build, um, custom fire pits is my main business and mm-hmm. you know if i have a let's call it a generic design that i know that people like i can build that in half the time that it takes me to do a custom one um and so therefore when i sell it it's it's more profitable and the question i guess is did, did you start off when you started your business did you start mainly just buy an old truck fix it up the way you think is cool and then sell it to someone who is not yet a customer and becomes your customer. How long did that sort yeah. of happen before you became customer comes in? I want this, 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 and this, and it becomes a lot more work. And do you, do you love that side yeah, right. of it or would you prefer to still just build something and then sell it? I, uh, you're absolutely correct. So when I, when I started my business, I mean, Basically, the gist when I started my business was you go to a car show, you know, a good one, like a concourse type show, and they've got all their, you know, Ferraris and Lambos and historic Mercedes Benz and all these things sitting out front and center in the trucks were always like, you know, the land of misfit toys. It's like half a block away and you have to go walk over to go see the trucks and they're sitting there in the corner and, and then you, you go up and you talk to the owner and you're like, why is that? why is the paint messed up in this thing? And it's like, well, it's just an old truck. And, and I just got so much of this, like, well, it's just an old truck. I went, when I started, I was like, what if you do like concourse level work, but to an old pickup truck? And people were like, A, we have no idea what you're talking about. B, it sounds like you're absolutely certifiably insane. Like no one's going to pay $100,000 for a pickup truck. Mm. And um, so I needed so no one really knew or understood what I had envisioned in my head. So yeah, I had to go to the bank and I took a line of credit and I had to build these things essentially on spec. So the first two, three, four trucks, I'm borrowing money to pay for these things without any idea if I'm going to come out whole on them or not uh, at the end. And uh, 
That was terrifying. Yeah. Uh, nowadays, I build everything is built for for customers, so they're all customer jobs. So a guy will call me and say, "I want a power wagon, not I want to buy the one you have for sale." Yeah. Um, and so we we start fresh builds for everyone. We do have things that come up for sale from from time to time. So uh, uh, maybe once or twice a year, if you check Facebook or Instagram or something, you'll see uh, a truck pop up. It's like, oh man, what's that thing? I gotta have that right now. And uh, skip a, a year or two, wait for your your custom truck and buy one that's got a couple hundred miles on it. So that that can work too. But really, to answer your question, yeah, at first it was it was terrifying. It was the you know it was the wild west. I had no idea if anything was gonna work or not, and I was willing to take a risk, and I was willing to work my tail off. I mean, I probably worked. 16 hours a day when I had to start this thing. And, you know, the guy that signs the paycheck is the same guy that cleans the toilet, you know, and that's, that's small business, man. Yeah. And, um, you know, scary, scary first couple of years. And uh, thank God it worked. And I've always tried to treat people the right way and just kind of be honest about what we're looking at. And if I'm going to have like a poor fit with a, with a customer and maybe they, they should shop somewhere else. You want to you want to vet that person out before you before you dive into it. You know, like is there a realistic budget, realistic expectations? Uh, can I even build a truck that's going to do what this guy wants to do? You got to go through all that stuff. So uh, again, when I'm working with a new client on a, on a new build, spending time talking and discussing before you picked up a wrench can save you so much uh, uh, of a pain later on mm, yeah so um guy calls everyone wants a diesel truck and a manual transmission great and then i'm like have you ever owned a diesel truck before like no and i'm like you live in northern canada right and it's like 30 degrees below zero and you know this is never going to start are, are you sure that's what you're looking for and they're like oh oh maybe not and i'm like or the i get a lot of people nowadays that they don't know how to drive a, a manual transmission. Yeah. Like, oh, i got to have an automatic in this thing. And it's like, wow, okay. So, I don't know, in the car industry, they say there's an ass for every seat, right? And you just got to get the right guy into the, the, the right vehicle, and then uh, then you're, you're pretty much good to go. You kind of vet each other out, come up with a contract, scope of work, execute, and that's allowed me to, like, like I said, I've, I've got vehicles over in uh, – New Zealand. In fact, I've got this uh, this hunting outfitter that has one of my power wagons over there, and uh, I guess they shoot a lot of pig hunting. I think pig hunting is kind of the big thing in, in New Zealand, and he's out there doing pig hunts and everything in his old his old power wagon, taking clients out, and uh, the uh, it I guess it works really well for him, almost as like an advertising piece yeah. uh, for the for the company. Um, and I don't know in Australia, but in the U.S. Uh, companies can buy assets like a classic truck and you can try and write it off as like a marketing expense or something like that. And uh, so that does allow, oh, probably 30, 35% of my clients are actually corporations, not individuals. Yeah. Yeah. It's a business write-off. 
No, that's cool. That's really good. Well, mate, we better we better wrap things up. I, I have a, a, a suspicion you and I could talk for hours, and uh, that would be fun. yeah, right. That would be fun. But uh, look, if if people you know want to check out your stuff, um, obviously you know the new new YouTube show, this old truck. Uh, jump on there, give it a subscribe, and uh, you'll get notifications Absolutely. for all the new episodes that come out. Um, and then you're on Instagram, uh, Legacy Classic Trucks. Um, and then I'm yep. assuming there's a website, probably the same name. There is, there is. Yeah, fantastic. And you know, if, if I'm if I'm listening to this podcast here in Australia, and and I've just realised I've got a wheelbarrow full of money, I can give you a shout, <laughs> and and you could you could build me a right hand drive Australian engineered um, vehicle. Yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah, that's we're in a we're in a great position to do that. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm fairly up to speed on some of the homologation, um, but I wouldn't call myself an expert in, say, Australian homologation. So I would meet with the client. I would review stuff with the government, you know, just make sure that I understand, maybe review something with you and say, hey, here's what I want to do. Is that even legal over there? Mm. So that we put it together the right way, put it in the container. It shows up in Australia, and they're like, cool, and it just flies through customs. Like, the last thing you want to do is, spend that wheelbarrow full of money and then realize I can't even register this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, but yeah, definitely. I encourage your, uh, your listeners to, to reach out anytime, whether it's, you know, parts, uh, if someone needs advice with something, you know, check out the, the YouTube channel, uh, Instagram, Facebook, all of that. A uh, lot of, lot of stuff up there. And, uh, I just really appreciate your time. I appreciate you having me on, uh, on your show and, Boy, if you ever want to talk trucks again, please, please give me a holler. Oh, absolutely, I'll I'll do that, and uh, and uh, I'll let you get back out. I think you were clearing snow when uh, when I tried calling earlier, so uh, you got your work cut out for you there. I I really I miss the mountains. I I did a winter in Colorado not too long ago. With my wife um, working on the ski patrol there, and uh, yeah, that I know the you know the Teton Valley and and that area is just so beautiful, and uh, yeah. You know, it, it's a fantastic spot so thanks again Winslow for all your time um, and uh, and yeah we'll uh, maybe we'll talk to you again in the future absolutely sounds great thanks again bye bye well that's the show for this week thank you for listening I hope you enjoyed this episode all information shared in our episodes is general and you should contact your engineer for advice on your build please remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share it with friends and fellow enthusiasts on Facebook iTunes or the good old word of mouth I appreciate hearing feedback, good and bad, so please feel free to shoot me an email, classicpickuppodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in advertising on the podcast and have a relevant business, please get in touch. And finally, if you have a project you're building, it can be hard to find the time to work on it. Just spend 15 minutes a day, even if you only unbolt one panel or mount one bracket, you'll be amazed at how quickly it all adds up. The music you hear in the background of this podcast is called Hammer On Down by Uncle Bonehead. Until next week, enjoy the ride.